that's a story for another time. That's right. You have to power through this. No, I got to power through this. Before your wife dies. It's a, <laughs> Yeah, it's a good thing that the title for the movie that we're doing today is short. Mank. 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 Sounds dirty to me. <laughs> like, I'll get your mank on. It's like, don't, what? Don't, t- don't talk to me like that. Manky business. What is up, my nerds? Welcome inside pop culture with fanboy and know-it-all. And back inside our crazy brains, I'm Jake. I am Paul. And we're talking about old dudes today. Lots and lots of old dudes. Uh, Which, you know, given 2020, I'm glad we're talking about old dudes tongue-in-cheek, or else this would just feel very (laughs) tone-deaf. That is true. That is very Especially true. because I know a significant portion of them will be old white dudes. And <laughs> it just feels like in 2020, everybody is fed up with old white dudes. Well, you think about it in, in some ways, it's super appropriate, right? Because, you know, as we get to the end of the, the year, you know, you always have those symbols for the year, you know, starts off as a little baby, then an old wizened man toward the end. We're getting to the old wizened man stage. And boy... Do we want to show this guy the door so much? It is time for him to go. It is time for that old man of 2020 to go. And it's even reflected in the movie that we're discussing today because we're continuing sort of our 2020 award season uh, lookout. I don't know, you know, advanced watch, right? Of the films that are probably going to likely be... Cleaning up some hardware come award season. The SAGs, the Golden Globes, they'll all be showered on some of these movies we're going to be talking about. Yeah. So for this episode, we decided to do Netflix's new release, Mank. And your number one pick for the fantasy film competition that we're doing. What is the name of that again, Jake? That's right. The Pop Culture with Fanboy and Know-It-All Fantasy Movie Award Season dra- League Draft. Well, that was where I picked them. It's just a league. You can take the draft off, you know, to shorten it a little bit. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Now, but, shorten uh, it a bit. A little bit. A little bit. Anything for the fans. Uh, that's that's what Netflix did with Mank because uh, Mank is not anybody's actual name. <laughs> that is correct. It is not anybody's actual name. It is actually the nickname for What's-His-Face that I don't have Her- right in front Herman of. Mankiewicz. Yeah. One of the most famous um, screenwriters, actually, of kind of the golden age of Hollywood, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. less famous now until, you know, unless Netflix has anything to do about it. Exactly. Exactly. I do think that Netflix has made him popular again. Mank is played by Gary Oldman. Gary, oh, how appropriate, and that's why we decided. Uh, with given the plot of Mank, uh, given the fact that Gary Oldman's last name is Old Man, and we decided, hey, we should rank the best old men <laughs> in cinema. You know, give throw the old men a bone. That's right. We need a bone every now and then. That's whoa, not a whoa, whoa, whoa. Really, 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 the way that sounds. Nope, nope. Scratch that. 
back you, that up. You right. need uh, <laughs> old, wow. old men need a little recognition every now and again. <laughs> This is not that type of podcast. I'm really disappointed in us. Please withhold the explicit rating, iTunes. Oh, I... You're nice, You're nice fellas. I really didn't mean that. Okay. I, You know what? I have, to take, I have to take responsibility for that one. I accidentally used that phrase uh, and, you know, just set you up for that. Yeah. Are you trying to help me with my Trying to help me keep my job. That's a good one. Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, we're talking about Netflix's Mank, and we're talking about – we're ranking our personal favorite old dudes in film. Old men in movies. Yes. Top five rank geeks, old men. Rank geeks. Yeah, and I have I'm choosing my list, by the way. It, it, I, had a lot of, I had a lot of favorite old men to choose from. That makes sense, especially now that – you yourself are in that category. You know. I am. I imagine you just feel more connected to these characters. I do. Anybody who is old, I suddenly find myself gravitating toward. And I say, why? Why do these young whippersnappers don't do listen to this person? Yeah, I hear once you have your first grandkid, you automatically understand Grand Torino in a whole new way. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's true. I am. Uh, I now am hoping to to give my grandson my Honda Fit, mm. my classic Honda Fit. That's right. When I'm vintage, a- vintage, sleek Honda Fit. Protect him from bullies by a great act of sacrifice. Man, that was a great movie. And of course, we will wrap up the show the way we love to wrap up every single little show with the most least important thing. But first, Mank. Mank is a funny movie to be talking about on an episode of Pop Culture with Fanboy and Know It All, where we're also talking about old men because. Ironically, Mank himself is not that old, although he looks very old as played by Gary Oldman. He looks ancient in this. And I guess Gary Oldman is actually much older than the character Mank, but but Mank like 20 years. <laughs> when they were like in the movie, I had no idea how old Mank was supposed to be in this film, but then at one point midway through they're like, "Oh, it's hard being 43." So I'm like, "43, give me a break." And he's having his birthday three decades ago. But the dude died like nine years later. He, alcoholism will do that to you. Alcoholism will do that to you. I don't think he lived the good, pure life that you do, Jake. I no, think that he true. lived hard, lived fast, lived badly, and thus died early. But yeah. while he was writing, he was a pretty good old man writer. And so the legend is. Further burnished by Netflix. <laughs> Old man Mank. <laughs> so how much did you know about Herman Mankiewicz before this movie began? I will be honest and say that I knew precisely zero about Old Man Mank. Uh, I've seen Citizen Kane, and we'll talk about why that's important here. But that made 
the ending of Mank, which I don't think it's really spoilers, but light spoilers. This stuff happened 70 plus years ago, folks. So sorry if, you know. Yeah. Sorry if you haven't been in tune to the last 70 decades, seven decades the way I have not been. But <laughs> yeah, I had no idea who I, I always thought Citizen Kane is like emblazoned in my mind as created, written, directed, produced, starring Orson Welles. Orson Welles all over the place. That's right. Before I actually saw Citizen Kane, the only thing I knew Orson Welles from was the Muppet movie. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which fits very well with Mank, right? You know, since he's like a studio yeah. executive in the Muppet movie. But then I saw Citizen Kane and then I, le- you know, learned about stuff uh, like that. And I was like, this is Orson Welles' baby fully. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But no, not so much. Not so much. It's interesting because uh, my first experience with Orson Welles was actually he always did these commercials for Ernest and Julio Gallo, a wine company. And he always just sort of sat there drinking wine. We will sell no wine before it's time. Something like that, <laughs> right? So that was my first experience. My second was the Muppet movie. I remember seeing him from the Muppet movie. So it was quite the revelation to to find out that he was this Hollywood genius right. who created what many still consider to be the greatest American movie ever made, Citizen Kane. Um, which was made in 1941, and he did star, he did direct, he did have a lot to do with this particular movie, but according to Mank, he didn't have that much to do with the screenplay, which was the only Oscar that that Citizen Kane actually won, was for Best Original Screenplay. This is the story, basically, of this really odd writer, sort of Hollywood's court jester if you will he would always he was always the smartest person in the room always quick with a witty joke um and he, everybody knew that he was brilliant um but he made a lot of people angry too and he drank a lot and eventually people just didn't want to work with him until, until Orson Welles sort of pulled him up and said hey why don't you write this uh, rough draft of a screenplay for us? And it's sort of the story about that rough draft, along with a lot of stuff from from uh, Herman Mankiewicz's earlier life. The movie doesn't seem particularly concerned with providing a whole lot of context, uh, which is fascinating with how much it spends in flashbacks and adding context for certain things it wants to tell you. But there's really not a whole lot of explanation of why we should know or care about this individual or this effort of his, you're sort of trying to uh, catch up with the film as it goes. Right. 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 Exactly. And, you know, I wonder if a lot of that was, I think that, that the filmmakers actually wanted to echo Citizen Kane in a lot of ways. So I think that they were kind of talking, you know, Citizen Kane is sort of the story of, Oh, Charles Foster Kane is the main character, right? And he is based off of Hearst, the famous Hearst who owned a a slew of newspapers, was a huge media mogul, built this gargantuan uh, mansion slash compound in the middle of California. Uh, San Simeon is what it was called. Um, In the movie, it's called Xanadu. Is that right? In Citizen Kane? Yep. 
And so it's sort of this story of hubris of this person who just let his ego get in the way of some of the good things that he wanted to accomplish. And, and it's not a very attractive look at the man, um, Charles. Who was still alive when this film came out. Who was still alive when this film came out. And, and a he, friend <laughs> of the screenwriter or a former friend. Former friend of the screenwriter, as as the movie goes into, and I, I think that Mank was in some ways um, also a curious story of hubris. It was more principled hubris, uh, but you see sort of this man um, who has a self destructive streak of his own. There was a scene actually in the movie in the movie Mank where he's given. He has to drink all the time, right? So his his editor brings him like this big old crate full of stuff that he thinks is alcohol. It's not. It's Percocet or something like that. So it knocks him out completely. It's a, it's a date rape drug. <laughs> it's not a good thing. He finds a way, even though his leg is broken, he finds a way and he drinks it. And the bottle falls to the floor, which is sort of a mirror you know, of of the very famous first scene in, in Citizen Kane, when Charles Foster Kane dies, says Rosebud, well, he actually says Rosebud before he dies, and he's holding the snow globe, and the mm-hmm. snow globe tumbles out of his hand just like this bottle of Percocet comes out. So I do think that the, the movie wanted to um, suggest that maybe these these characters were... Even though Mank was campaigning against them, there's some similarities between the character that he drew in the movie and himself. Yeah. And I think that's where the movie both succeeds and fails in that it it's trying to give you a sense. And it says this kind of outright when Mank is talking about what he was trying to do with the screenplay for Citizen Kane and trying to give you a sense of someone's life. Mank seems to get caught in between wanting to do that, to give you a sense of... Manx's personhood and overarching theme of his life and persona while also trying to make a very direct point through a timeline of events about how Citizen Kane, the screenplay came to be and what its political implications may or may not have been at the time. Right. Um, right. And so it seemed to me that the movie, this, this screenplay, this narrative found itself trapped between those two worlds and ends up being kind of a jumble of the two. Yeah. I couldn't agree with you more. I think that the, the movie actually had a very political focus as, as many movies do, it's hard to find, you know, true escapist, Oscar bait type of movies anymore. And they all have, Mm -hmm. they all have an important point to make and there's nothing wrong with that. But, but I do think that uh, the movie was definitely trying to make some points, not only about the time that Mank was writing and about this very interesting story about how this screenplay came to be, but also make some points about our political environment today. It, it had some interesting things to say on that count, but for me, the old movie lover that I am, it did distract, I thought. Um, it, it, I, I, one of the things that I loved about the movie is how spot on it felt to sort of that 1940s black and white vibe. The whole thing is filmed in black and white. You have a lot of the, the, the sets or the, the scenes that they choose to, to shoot in a certain way feel very, very period-esque. 
Um, it feels it feels like a great homage to old movie making. But then you have sort of this overlay of of, of political commentary with it that that made it that it was just distracting for me. I think that it, it made it less enjoyable for me in a way. Yeah. The first, honestly, the first half an hour, forty five minutes of this movie, I thought. Man, I love this movie, and man, I hate Jake for picking it number one on his list. But then, as the movie sort of went on, I, 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 I lost my enchantment with it. I think because of some of the, not because of the messages, but because they left it feeling jumbled. It's not that you can't, you know, try to do some of the different things that they tried to do in a film. It's just that they tried to do all of them in the same film, right? And I think when you do that, that's when you end up with something that's overly long. It did feel long. It it did feel drawn out, did feel preachy. Um, I think part of why Citizen Kane has endured for as long as it has is it tells this story, but it's, and it certainly has a point and it certainly has many points that it wants to emphasize about its main character and to your point, hubris, but it doesn't concern itself with telling you that. It just tells the story and lets those things come across. Mank, boy, it just gets caught right in that limbo. Uh, you can tell it's like this push and pull uh, between whoever wasn't, you know, the screenwriters and the screenplay writers and the editors and the director. It's like nobody for sure knew how much they wanted to show and how much they wanted to tell. And so it gets caught in between at times feeling like, well, let's just show you what's happening here. At other times being just so overtly political. It's not just that it has a political related message. It's just that it's overtly right. political and it just wants to focus on that. And you're like, wait, what was the point of this film again? Yeah. And, and it feels just distracting. And I think for, yeah. for certain people who, uh, and, and honestly, I think it can be for people who, who lean either way. I right. think that message can be, overly distracting like some people will not like this movie just because of the message it'll be some easy to love it because of the message but lose all the artistry that's involved with it too because they're so right. focused in on that and yeah it's it's it was difficult one one of the things though that i did want to bring up it might not have been completely successful as a movie man i thought the performances in this were amazing amazing yeah even though i'm not convinced that this is really going to be a best picture uh contender in in the big scheme of things maybe i'm hoping it'll get a nod since i picked it on my team <laughs> i do think it's going to get some of those actor supporting actor actress screenplay like i thought the writing in many places was yeah. good even if it wasn't always even and I thought that the performances were really solid. I agree with you there. And I think I'm going to get some points out of that. Yeah, I think you're going to get points for cinematography. Definitely yep. that's going to get some nods because I thought the cinematography was just amazing. Um, I would imagine you'll probably get some costume stuff because Oscar voters just love these period films. But I tell you, Gary Oldman... I have now seen Mank in Ma, Rady, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, which is going to be coming out on Netflix coming up in, uh, well, probably just a day or two by the time this episode drops, right? Yeah. I think the best actor is going to come down between Gary Oldman and Chadwick Boseman. I think that they are 
they're going to be locked in a head-to-head competition. Oldman, I thought, was... He was so darn likable as a fairly washed-up, drunken character. I you you can't help but like this dude, you know. Yeah. I thought, well, and, and I thought Lily Collins, you know, turned in a pretty solid performance as as one of his aides, mm-hmm. um, and mm-hmm. even some understated performances in a movie that had overstated performances, like uh, Louis Mayer was very overstated. Right, he was a big, bold, brash character. Yeah. Uh, and poor Sarah, Mank's wife, I thought was a pretty good, I don't think she's probably going to get award buzz, but I thought she did a good turn as a, a quiet um, character in the film. Yeah. What about Amanda Seyfried? I thought that, that was surprising was- for me. I, I've not watched a lot of her stuff, but I, you know, she kind of nailed that vibe, that stereotypical vibe of that Hollywood era starlet for me. Yeah, I I thought so too. I honestly think that one of the best performances, and I, I would doubt that this is going to get any sort of awards consideration, but honestly, Charles Dance as the Hearst character, yeah. he was terrifying in this. I thought that he did really well with like, he probably spoke about 20 words during the entire movie, Yeah, but he- His presence. His presence, that's absolutely right. He had definitely this- this power about him that was impressive to behold. So yeah, I thought the performances were spot on. Yeah. So ultimately I don't, I didn't feel like Mank was a bad movie, but I don't also think that it was a great film. Um, I think it's flawed. It's, you know, there, there again, there's going to be a lot of people that just won't dig what it's selling. And, but if you're into period pieces of this time and, cinematography, screenplay, you know, some good performances. It's not the worst use of your time. There are some content caveats. You know, this is, a, this for me is a classic vidangel case. I, I vidangeled this and, you know, quickly cut out, you know, some gratuitous content that I'm sure you can find in Paul's review. <laughs> um, but for an R-rated movie, it's really not as gratuitous as you would expect. You right. do have some, some stuff that they just didn't need. You know, there there was a a pretty uh, a pretty salacious scene of a bare breasted woman taking notes in a writer's room, and you definitely had some foul language. But beyond that, I mean, it was really not too not too bad from a content caveat perspective. Right, really, you you if you excise that one scene the way I did with VidAngel, bloop gone, no clue was there. Paul warned me. Uh, <laughs> And a word here or there, this feels like a movie that's PG, maybe PG-13 just due to like dealing with some heavy subject matter such as mental health and substance abuse and things like that. But not, uh, not, yeah, it's not the type that just grinds you into dust with its yeah. excesses. Yeah. The, the one thing that makes I... indulgences that much more frustrating. Yeah. Well, and I think that that's really true. I think that... Uh, it, in, in the other thing, and I'm not sure if this was necessary or not, but it was one thing that I did mention in my review. Um, Mank is, as we've mentioned several times now, he died of alcoholism. He drank himself to death. And there's a little quote that talks about his self-destructive behavior. But because of Oldman's performances, he comes across as so likable and his drinking comes across as almost 
almost just a nice little character piece of him, you know? Not a fatal flaw, even though that's exactly what it was, but just sort of, it was a quirk of his. And and I I don't know if that's the healthiest message to send. Right. They didn't really hit that hard enough. And although they included, like you said, a bit at the end about how he died of alcoholism, that really did truly look, feel like a footnote on a film where he was, yeah, kind of quirky and goofy and lovable when he was drunk. And, oh, he spoke the truth a little bit more yeah. when he was drunk. And, oh, isn't that silly, you know? And it yeah. was almost and, – and, you know, they made it this big deal about how it helped his writing without right. really showing how crippling the addiction was right uh, on him and those around him. It was – you're right. It, it did kind of seem more like, a, oh, you know, isn't that a silly relic of the times that – yeah. But, in real life, we know it was much more destructive in in his life. Yep, yep, yep. And I think that that's fitting for movies of the times too. I mean, you see drunken people in those those old movies, and it's people talk so often. This is uh, taking more of a plugged in tangent, but people talk so <laughs> often about um, how much worse movies are today. There's so much more gratuitous content, and that's true on a certain level. But you look at other issues. You know, the racism, the drunkenness, it, it's a lot worse, actually, in some of those older movies. And that that's one of the unfortunate things that Mank brings back. Yeah. People who are drunk are just funny and harmless. And that's not true. Right. Yeah. And I think that's that's where it just didn't feel like it got to be hard hitting enough on any of the points it wanted to make, because it felt like it really danced around so many of the hard points it could have made about the truly destructive nature of the political views, like whether you agree with them or not, they could have portrayed those in a much more destructive way. And yet they really kind of movieized it and, and overly kind of got melodramatic with the villains from a political perspective or on the alcoholism point, they could have made some really interesting decisions from a storytelling perspective had they just showcased you know some of the destruction and destructive tendencies that this addiction had on his life even though he felt like it was a crutch in his writing and yet they avoided that and kind of went the opposite direction not getting melodramatic in making the, the way they did with the villains but getting goofy and you know kind of playful with it and and so that was where ultimately I think this movie failed where Citizen Kane succeeded. In Citizen Kane, you see a story told of this hubris that tore away at this man's soul in life and had all these destructive consequences. But you you observed all that happen, right? You observe things crumble internally in, in his and watch his empire slowly decay. And with Mank, it it just kind of jumbles around a bit, laughs at the alcoholism, makes this big melodramatic political point, and really fails to make any hard-hitting points about the destructiveness of what it wants to showcase. Yeah, yeah. It it is an interesting thing. I, I think I think the end result was that this is a good movie and in many respects a very good movie. Um but it's uneven enough where it can't be called great. And no. definitely when you're designing a movie around Citizen Kane, you're you're actually calling maybe unintentionally perhaps, but but you're drawing comparisons with your source material. And it certainly doesn't reach its source material. 
Yeah. Ultimately, this lands at about a 6.25 out of 10 for me. Oh, you are hard scale. Paul, where does it land for you? I would, I would go, I would go seven, five, seven point five. It's not 2001, a space odyssey good, but it's pretty good. Well, there you have it. Uh, we're not, we're not as close as we may have seemed in our analysis of this film. (laughs) Paul is much more generous. (laughs) Yeah. I don't have the harsh point structure that you do. It goes with my, my fanboy persona. That's right. Well, speaking of fanboying and being less harsh, uh, it's time for us to rank our favorite old dudes in cinema. (laughs) Here we are in Rank Geeks. We have not transitioned locations, just time that's right we're temporal travelers in your audio canals welcome into rank geeks where inspired by an old gary oldman playing an old but actually not that old mank we're talking about our favorite old characters in movies old men old, old men characters in movies inspired by gary old man old man, old man. and if he's the like... sexist one not us his yeah. name could have been old person Gary old person. And we would have done a different show. Our hand was forced. Our hand was forced. It feels like Jake, I, of any, any of the segments that I should have introduced, this is probably it being the old man that I am. That's right. So yeah, I'm, I'm kind of excited about this list. This was a hard list for me to, uh, to divvy up, to be quite honest. Um, as I mentioned at the top and I, but I do have some really great, old men to talk about. And before we even get started, I want to, this is how many old men I have. I have to give a call out, extra credit call out to everyone who has ever played Ebenezer Scrooge. (laughs) Even Jim Carrey? (laughs) Maybe not Jim Carrey, but yeah, I was just looking at, like, I've been thinking a lot about Christmas movies lately, right? And uh, A Christmas Carol has been remade roughly 273 times and all of the people who play Ebenezer Scrooge they're pretty good. George C Scott, Albert Finney, Patrick Stewart was Scrooge once. Um Michael Caine, Guy Pierce was actually Scrooge at one point in time. Mr. Magoo? Oh, he did uh Guy Pierce did like a dark one, right? Yes, he did. I heard about this. I heard it was really depressing, which yeah. he said for a story that's already very depressing. Yeah, it, it's a 2019. It's it's definitely goes into let's take this this beautiful beloved property that's pretty dark anyway, and make it really dark. Let's 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 rub it in any light. Exactly. Make it a make it the horror movie that that Charles Dickens always wanted it to be. They're like. Let's take a Christmas Carol and then make it a Coen Brothers film <laughs> where everybody sucks. <laughs> you know, when you think about it, actually, Christmas is just filled with old men. You got Ebenezer Scrooge. Yep. Santa Claus has been doing his thing for who knows how long. Yeah. He is the oldest of old men, and he's been in his share of movies too. Which is funny given that, you know, Christmas is supposed to be about Jesus, who is. The youngest dude possible <laughs> when it comes to being born as a child. It's like, hey, we're celebrating somebody being born. 
Bring in the old dudes. But in the beginning was the word, and the word was made flesh, so he's also very old. Certainly timeless. You know, beyond the ages, beyond the truest temporal time traveler of all time. I think we need a minister in here. That's right. Uh, <clears throat> this is theological fact check with Bad <laughs> Boy and Know It All. <laughs> Any more shout outs before we dive into this? I'm done. Ones? I'm done with my shout outs. Ebenezer, right. Santa Claus, two very old men in a lot of movies. There you go. Number five on my list of favorite old dudes in cinema Jeff Bridges as Obadiah Stane. Oh. In- 2008's Iron Man. <laughs> Other than the fact that he is a bad guy, uh, this is old man goals for me. I want to look like Jeff Bridges from Iron Man when I am that age. Jeff Bridges was around 60, a little, you know, when this movie was made, and uh, give or take a year or two, depending on what point of production it was, but. Boy, is Jeff Bridges a good-looking sixty as over there. <laughs> yeah. He is. He is. You know, he's got that wiry kind of old man muscle, right? He's solid. He's the sleek, shaved head and the nice, thick gray beard, and his voice. I mean, Jeff Bridges' voice. It's the voice. I mean, yeah. honestly, it is the voice. You could. You could look like. I don't know. Jim Belushi, and if you had a voice like that, you'd still you'd still draw your share of attention. I think you know. Yeah. So, if I if I am anywhere close to that when I'm around sixty, I'm yeah. going to be feeling just fine. Yeah, I I feel like I'm pretty close to that now, as I'm getting closer to that age. You know what, Paul? Ten years, a thicker beard, and more of that weight room for you. <laughs> Obadiah Stone is not out of reach for you. Now, I don't know what to do about the voice, but... <laughs> the voice is already there. Listen to my dulcet tones. <laughs> Give us some ASMR. <laughs> Can you do a Jeff Bridges impersonation? <laughs> no, I'm not even going to go there. Not even going to go there. So it's interesting because I was also thinking about Jeff Bridges for True Grit. He did a great job in True Grit. And he was definitely an old, wizened man in that. But, well, and he was an Oscar contender in, as an old man in another film that I'm forgetting the title of, an old musician. Oh, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that one. I remember that one. He won, actually, for that role. Yeah. Crazy but, Heart. Crazy Heart. Yep. Yep. He, uh, you know, the thing about Jeff Bridges, he is super cool, but he only really plays two characters. He plays the Obadiah Stane character, and he plays the, the Rooster Cogburn character from True Grit, you know? But that's all right, because it works. Um, number five on my list, Miracle Max. Ayo! Miracle Max, mostly dead, from The Princess Bride. Uh, played, of course, by Billy Crystal, who is not particularly old, but definitely the Miracle Max and The Princess Bride is very old. This is not a person who you necessarily want to look like when you're 60, Jake, although it may be closer to your ultimate truth, it was a great turn. Definitely yours. Fantastic. It was really good. From one of my favorite movies of all time, I think that Miracle Max might have been my favorite character in that movie. Yeah. Uh, It's perfect that you put that at number five 
Because number four for me is Billy Crystal's Miracle Max from The Princess Bride. <laughs> oh. Billy Crystal as Miracle Max in The Princess Bride was the first thing I ever saw Billy Crystal in, you know? And I remember later whenever my parents – I watched uh, City Slickers with my parents. I could not believe what Billy Crystal looked like. I, he was He was burned in my mind as this old – Mad Max character. When I saw what Billy Crystal looked like at the time, he was only about 40 when he made The Princess Bride. And so they really had to do the prosthetics and make him look super old. And it just blew my young mind. (laughs) And then you see all this other stuff that he was in and you're like, that guy was Miracle Max? Hollywood is crazy. (laughs) That was where you fell in love with the movies, right there. Right. It was he was so his his so manic. His energy was perfect for that role, and you know, just the twinkle in his eye. Um, oh, it reminded me of my great grandfather Wilkins, but you know, they they both had a bit of a mischievous side to him. And I tell you what, one of the things that made him so good, honestly, Miracle Max would not have been nearly as good if it hadn't been for his lovely wife, played by Carol Kane. That's right, man. She was so funny. Makes me wonder because it seemed like. You know, she was in Taxi. I don't know if you're familiar with her work in Taxi. She was hilarious in that. And then I didn't see her again until The Princess Bride. Where had she been all that time? Yeah, I think the other thing I had seen, I saw her in later was um, that Bill Murray Christmas film. Yeah, Um, that one. You know that one where she played one of the ghosts? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No. What was that one called? I'll, I'll look it up while you go to your number four. Number four for me. This is going to be one that might make you mad, but we'll see. Aragorn, Lord of the Rings. I mean, he's my favorite character from Lord of the Rings and technically super old. Technically super old. 87 years old. You want to look like Jeff Bridges when you're 60? It would be all right to look like Viggo Mortensen when you're 87. That's right. Yeah. Um... The movies are great. I thought that Viggo Mortensen did a fantastic job of as Aragorn. He obviously looked like a young man, but since he was technically an old man, I threw him on this list just to spite you. Just to spite me. But it didn't work because I am a big fan of Aragorn. So <laughs> jokes on you. And and Viggo Mortensen was the perfect. So not he, only was Aragorn. Not only was he my favorite character in the movie, but I Strider slash Aragorn was my favorite character in the books and was probably the character I was most worried about as a child coming into the movies. It's like, of course, I wanted them to do everybody really well, but I loved Strider slash Aragorn and was really worried that they wouldn't do a good job with him because, well, you know, I had seen the Lord of the Rings cartoon. Right. From, you know, like yeah, yeah, yeah. the yeah. old one. And boy, they just screwed up every character in that one, including Strider. Yeah. And so uh, seeing Viggo Mortensen, he was just so flipping cool. So flipping cool. Yeah. Like I, just he he had the smolder, you know. He was just he was just a bad bad man. Well, it's it's interesting. So I'm reading The Hobbit now, right? And I'm doing my very best to so actually. Everything that the movie said about The Hobbit, because sometimes you picture the same people in the movies that you read about in the book. And 
man, you just don't want the movie Hobbit stuck in the book Hobbit because the book Hobbit is so much better. Right. When it comes to Lord of the Rings, honestly, Gandalf and Aragorn, those personify, I, I think, my image of both of those characters. What we saw in the movies just translated so well. And yeah, that was those two characters, they made those movies work almost yep. as much as the Balrog. Yep. Coming back to that little fact what I dropped earlier, Carol Kane played the ghost of Christmas present in 1988's Scrooged. Scrooged. Uh, oh, yeah. Gotcha, gotcha. So, speaking of other people who have played Ebenezer Scrooge, Bill yeah. Murray. Though uh, his character's name was Frank Cross, but Frank Cross was a stand-in for Ebenezer. Exactly, exactly. Now he can play Ebenezer Scrooge pretty well. That's right. Number three on my list <clears throat> is 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 actually the oldest actor, at least as far as when he played this role on film. And uh, that my pick is Alan Arkin as Grandpa in Little Miss Sunshine <laughs> from 2003. What a feisty, fun grandpa character he is. Flawed, not perfect, but boy, was he a fun grandpa character. You could tell he loved his family. He was a little rough around the edges, but he had this this little winking edge to him. And I saw this movie like relatively young, like as a late high schooler. And man, I was just so drawn to this grandpa character. He was a blast even then, even though this movie wasn't really probably designed for me. <laughs> no, probably not. Probably not. Wasn't he nominated for an Academy Award for that? I think that, I yeah. think he was. It, it might be his most memorable role. And Alan Arkin has had a lot of memorable roles. It was sort of like the moment of his resurgence, I kind of think. Um, yeah, he... I have to say there are a lot of Little Miss Sunshine fans out there. I mean, they love the movie like no other movie. Yeah. I have to say, I didn't quite get that. Yeah, but it, the movie, Arkin, overall film didn't wasn't it's not like it's not gonna make my top list. Yeah, yeah. But you're right, he did win best performance by an actor in a supporting role. And also the other Academy Award it won, fitting for this episode, was Best Original Screenplay. <laughs> very went, interesting went to one michael arndt so there you go maybe we'll get a movie about arndt one day but uh probably not because you know the movie itself isn't as classic as citizen kane but uh you know alan arkin's grandpa character really resonated with me even though the overall film wasn't like blowing me away right i when i went to make this list i was not thinking about little miss sunshine and then as i was thinking through it i was like but Alan Arkin and Little Miss Sunshine. All right. <laughs> he jumped all the way to number three. Very cool. Number three for me, Professor X. Professor X. Specifically from Logan. I thought mm-hmm. Sir Patrick Stewart did an amazing job of Professor X. Obviously, he he's always been a pretty good professor in all of the X-Men movies. You can't go wrong with Patrick Stewart. He just he just looks cool. He sounds cool. He wheels around in his wheelchair very coolly. Um, he's just a cool character. But in Logan, he took it a step beyond, I thought. Yep. And he was definitely an he felt old in this. He felt old. He felt um, very disturbed in mind in a way. 
Uh, he was, and he personified that really super well, sort of getting across the confusion that comes across with, with dementia and Alzheimer's and all that sort of stuff, but still retaining the kindness, the, the, the warmth um, to balance both of those things in one character. I thought he did a tremendous job. Yeah, that's a great point. I, you know, when I was making my list, I thought about Professor X and I didn't dislike him and other stuff. I thought he did a fine job. But when I think about Logan as a, as a film, I, I have to agree. That's a great pick. Yay. I win. I win. Number two on my list. Uh, Paul actually previewed this a couple of picks ago. Uh, it's not Aragorn because I personally decided to stick with people who look old. Uh, as a callback real quick to my number three, I forgot to say Alan Arkin was about 70 when he made his film. But for me, number two is Sir Ian McKellen, who was about 60 years old when he played the role of Gandalf. Though he actually looks a little bit older than 60s. Right? Yes, he uh, does. They, they do a good job making him this lithe old man. In, even though he was also old when he made that film. But boy, is there anybody, when you think about Gandalf in the Shire and then, you know, Gandalf throughout the films, is there anybody else he'd want to be your grandpa? <laughs> no. Nobody no. else other than my number one pick, which I'm not going to spoil right now. But um, just his presence was absolutely pitch perfect as Gandalf, you know, the, the, why, you know, sort of the wizened character that he had, uh, his, his charm, you know, had so much charisma. He was fun, but he was serious and he just, he could dispense wisdom, but he also had that little glint in his eye, a little bit of mischief in him. And that's how I like my old men. And I realize how that sounded. Yeah, that sounds a little bit of mischief to them, and that's how I like him. Yep, yep, great. It's the kind of old man I aspire to be, wise, but a little bit mischievous. <laughs> Can I just say, I actually think Grand- Gandalf would be a terrifying grandfather. <laughs> terrifying. But he does blow some mean smoke, ring- smoke rings, and that's that's pretty good. Yeah, you got to think, you know, he can... You got to think about him in the Shire, you know, because he could be terrifying in other ways. But those grand, here's the thing: like my grandpa, my grandpa Robertson, he he had that edge to him. And this is prob this is probably one of those places where a lot of people found him to be a cranky old man. But <laughs> I always sense this affection behind it. Like he had this glimmer in his eye, this glisten in his eye that when he was poking and he was prodding and he was making jokes and he was getting on to people, like I always felt this warmth behind it. And I always knew he loved me, even though I don't specifically remember him ever saying that. It wasn't that it wasn't really his style to say that. But I always felt this connection with him. You know, he had this mischievous edge to him and I always, this playfulness to him. And so, you know, maybe there's a bit of that nostalgia in there where there were other grandkids that I think were terrified by my grandpa Robertson. But for <laughs> me, I, there was something, I saw something behind it and connected with him uh, from a young age. So there you go. That's really cool. That's actually really cool. So this is interesting because I considered both Gandalf and another wizard, Dumbledore, from my list, the the Richard Harris version of Dumbledore from from the first Harry Potter movies, because yeah. I thought Richard Harris was so cool, um, but I couldn't decide between the two. Plus, 
you know, Gandalf, I'm actually wondering whether you're cheating a little bit because is he really a man? Is he, are those wizards like totally different? So, well, now you're getting, what about Rangers? Yeah, no, they're men, but um, <laughs> I think it counts. All right. All right. All right. Number two for me. This will come of, as no surprise to you. I always have to put a character or up somewhere on all of these lists, if I can at all. Carl Fredrickson from Up, voiced by Ed Asner. <laughs> Unbeknownst to Paul, I jotted down on my paper towel, Up, Carl Fredrickson. <laughs> Carl Fredrickson, he is a great grumpy old man. He is a great kindly old man. He exemplifies old manliness to a T in some ways. Not not the Jeff Bridges old manliness, but just sort of just sort of what it must feel like to be old and to have, you know, some of the people that you love die and to try to still capture some of your dreams. Um I thought that he was a great character in this. He held the whole movie together. Can't beat Carl Fredrickson enough. Yeah, I can't argue with it. Uh, it's likely he would have landed somewhere on my list, except that I knew he'd be on yours and <laughs> he'd go somewhere else. And also Obadiah Stein is just a bad, bad man. But uh, it's a good pick. He, You're right. You know, you see uh, uh, Pixar did a masterful job of getting behind the crusty exterior, mm-hmm. right? Letting us see the man for who he was and, the burdens that he had accumulated over a lifetime and let us watch a dog and a bird and a little boy break down that crusty exterior and expose that warm, caring grandfatherly heart. And it's, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful old man film. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, now I want to watch it again. Yeah. Though that's just every day for you. (laughs) Number one on my list the person that I most, you know, I, I love my dad and my dad's my number one dad and number one grandfather. But if I, ha- if I was forced to pick somebody from popular culture to be my dad and, you know, the grandfather to my grandchildren, uh, I would go with Bill Nye, not the science guy, but the old British actor, Bill Nye as dad from About Time. Oh, this is unfamiliar to me. I have not seen About Time. Yeah, so Bill Nye, you might call him Bill Nighy, N-I-G-H-Y. Mm-hmm. I'm uh, he's been in things like Pirates of the Caribbean and The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and many, many other films. But his role as dad in About Time, which stars Domhnall Gleeson and Rachel McAdams uh, in the primary roles, but then Bill Nye plays uh, Domhnall Gleeson's dad. And my goodness... Uh, the scenes between uh, Domhnall and Bill Nye in this film are just gorgeous father-son moments. I mean, they will warm your heart as they rip it out with the emotion. It is just beautiful. The the relationship that they're able to communicate between these two and the love and the care um, between these two. And, and what ultimately amounts to a relatively small amount of screen time um, – though not insignificant. I mean, it's just one of the sweetest, most impactful, like father son relationships that I never saw coming. Um, about time. I know I've talked about it elsewhere. It's well worth watching. 
I think. Um, well, it has its content caveats, but the Bill Nye as the dad is he's about in his mid sixties when he played this role. It's just wonderful. So I may have to put this on my backlist if it's not already on there because you've talked about it incessantly, and so it feels it feels like it's probably about time that I actually watch it. Ew. Plus, if you're a sucker for parent-child relationships, oh my goodness gracious! See, it just might be it just might be too hard. It just might be too hard for me. It could. I mean, it's like it's got a father-daughter thread, a brother-sister thread, a father-son thread, a husband-wife thread, a father with his kid now young kids thread. I mean, it's just got so many of these threads and it just slugs you with them over and over again in beautiful <laughs> ways. But boy, does it wreck you at the same time. Oh my goodness. But Paul, I'll say this. I don't know that I've ever felt more joyful after watching a film than I did after watching About Time. I'll just hmm. say it that way. I felt like hugging everybody that I met as, out, as soon as I walked out of the theater. So, I mean- don't watch this if you're about to go out into a crowd, you yeah. know. Yeah. But. That's that's how I felt after watching Avengers Endgame. <laughs> you felt joyful? So joyful. And like hugging people? Hugging. Yeah. Crying, hugging. It was very moving for me. There you go. Number one, Number one. for me, you actually spoiled this a little bit earlier, far earlier in the show, actually. Walt Kowalski, Grand Torino. Kowalski. Yes, was I think about 78 years old when he did this. I think it is um when it was made in 2008, it turned out to be one of my very favorite movies of the year. I thought that it was really a very it was a difficult movie in spots, but man, the ending just packed a wallop for me. It was a very um beautiful story of redemption in a way. And I think that the Clint Eastwood it might be the best thing I've ever seen him in, quite frankly. I think that it it puts Unforgiven to shame. Um, mm. I think that he has done a masterful job with this particular movie. Um, really powerful. It, it was one of those movies that I think was released too late in the year to get a lot of Oscar consideration because I think it deserved it. Yeah. Grand Torino's on my backlist, so you know that's that's one we're probably going to have to revisit along with About Time one of these days. About Time, Grand Torino, double feature. We'll have to do Grand Torino first, and Alan and and uh, About Time second, just so we end on a high note. You know, <laughs> you know, I do worry a little bit. I mean, Grand Torino is really rough, and I'm wondering whether looking back, it worked in 2008. We are in a much different place in 2020, and I wonder how well it works, but we'll see. We'll see. Hey, that's what we're here for. We're here to make those types of decisions for the world. So that uh, I look forward to making that decision, whether or not it still works. <laughs> You're welcome, world. Speaking of those types of decisions, now it's time for the most least important thing. Welcome to the most least important thing, the way we love to wrap up every single little show of ours, taking tiny ants and building them massive schools, Zoolander style. 
That's right. We make big deals out of little things. And sometimes we make, we take big deals and we turn them into little things. This is a school for ants. Um, <laughs> Not my best work, but uh, I am starting today for my most least important thing to discuss uh, a big announcement from Warner Media and some of the backlash that it has engendered. And that is the news that you may or may not have already heard that Warner Media has announced that uh, it's going to be doing this weird hybrid HBO Max theatrical release schedule in 2021. And it has angered a lot of people, not the least of which being one Christopher Nolan, who is very displeased with the decision of Warner Media to do this release of a major motion picture in theater at the same time as releasing it on the streaming service, HBO max believing there are those that are against the decision that believe it's undermining um, the theater experience and the money-making model that Hollywood has relied on for a long time. And others that believe it's Warner media starting to adjust to a new future. Um, I, I tend to think it's probably not the extreme either way, but it has spun up a lot of criticism. And uh, I'm just curious to know what you think of this development, Paul. It's a really interesting development. And that seems like kind of a cop-out. And I suppose it is. I, I, I really appreciate, we've talked on this podcast before about, you know, the theater experience. And there is something special about being in a theater. And I can totally understand why Christopher Nolan would have been one of the main proponents to keep things in the theater because his movies are predicated on big experiences. Um, There's a lot of opinions on Tenet, but you know that was a big screen experience. Um, His Dark Knight movies, he he has done so much stuff in IMAX that, that he, he really appreciates that visual pop, that visual presence. And even though screens are getting bigger and bigger and bigger at home, um, they're never going to be as big and the sound is never going to be as great as you find in the theaters. Um, So I totally get that. But I also think that we are seeing, and, and, and for the record, I really hope that theaters never go away. I wish secretly that HBO Max did not do this, that Warner Brothers did not do this, because I think that there is something very cool about the theater experience. And I would hate to see it greatly diminished. At the same time, when you look at the the landscape out there, it has diminished and it will continue to diminish. I think that that COVID has sped up the process for sure, but it was already on its way. I mean, you have Netflix releasing so many Oscar bait movies the last few years. Um, You know, a lot of other streaming services are sort of hopping on board. Um, And on some level, I wonder whether it hurts the movie experience, but I wonder whether it might help movies in general. And the reason why I say that is because lately movies have been driven by the movie industry has been driven by a handful of huge blockbusters, the Avenger movies, the star Wars movies, these huge, huge experiences that you step into uh, loaded with CGI. They cost 200 million, $300 million to make. We have lost a lot of the smaller 30 to $50 million movies that, that I think 
um, can generate a lot of power with their character and with their stories and with the the richness of of just sort of that storytelling experience. And I'm wondering whether this might be the time when the movie industry sort of turns back and rediscovers those stories. And I don't think that's a bad thing. No. And I think the truth is usually somewhere in the middle. I don't think this is, I don't think theaters are going to snap back to being exactly what they were always were, but I also don't think they're going to go away anytime soon. Like being one of those people who has, you know what I, uh, as a Christmas present for the family, we invested in sort of doing a budget basement, not truly home theater, but we got a projector and we got a big screen and, you know, we can do 4k on a hundred inches and have this big experience. And it's a lot of fun. It's a blast, but it does not, it still cannot scratch what the itch that a big theater screen can. And so, you know, and especially when you look at how something like radio has endured in its own niche and how live television has endured, against things like streaming in its own niche. And so I think what we'll just see is to your point, we'll just see people get better at telling the right stories in the right mediums. And that's something we've complained about in many different ways, but even radio as it's adapted, again, it's not gone away and it's transformed into a streaming live hybrid with podcasting, but we still have this desire for audio storytelling. And so we listen to radio slash podcasts. But then we still have this desire for, um, you know, streaming has not killed live TV. There's still things we want to watch live on TV, sporting events, reality TV shows. These are things that have and, and others are things that have endured in these mediums in spite of other mediums changing the way certain things happen. We've just adapted and said, OK, we'll, t- we'll put this event in live TV, this event in radio, this event in podcasting, this material in streaming this material in theaters, I think that's where we're moving. And that's where I think Christopher Nolan is going to be okay. You know, it's interesting because I think this conversation actually loops back to the very beginning of this podcast. When you think about Mank, which was released by Netflix on quote unquote small screen, talking about a big screen movie, you know, a big Hollywood movie. The irony is that probably most of us, most of us alive today have never seen Citizen Kane. If we've seen it at all, we have seen it on a small screen. We are used to seeing old movies on that small screen. And so in some ways, Mank is a great story for that type of environment because it tells the story of this guy. It doesn't need a lot of special effects to bring its point across. And so I think that's sort of interesting. All right. Paul, what do you have for us? My most least important thing. Guess what is number one on the Billboard charts at this very moment. If you say Santa baby, I'm going to break my laptop. <laughs> no, but just as bad. Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You. Back Ugh. number one on Billboard's Hot 100. Now, this is really significant. And the reason why I bring this up is, is it was released in 1994. Um, it has made periodic jumps back to the top of the chart. Uh, it is one of the most successful um, Christmas songs of all time. But get this, five of the top 10 songs on Billboard's Hot 100 are all older, much older. Mariah Carey is joined by Brenda Lee's Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree, 1958, Bobby mm-hmm. Helms' Jingle Bell Rock, 1957, 
Andy Williams, It's the Most Wonderful Time of the Year, 1963. And for the first time ever, Jose Feliciano's Feliz Navidad jumped into the top 10 50 years after its release. It's the first time it has made it into the top 10. Look at that. See, music streaming has its perks. It's bringing back the oldies. It's true. It's true. So I thought it was only appropriate since we did a whole podcast on old men and old men that we talk about old songs. That's fitting, uh, even if not all of those songs are equally as good as the others. <laughs> but hey, that is a conversation for another podcast. What's your least favorite Christmas song of all time? Or your favorite old man character in a movie of all time? Or did you watch Mank on Netflix? We would love to talk about it. We're on Twitter. I'm at Jake underscore Roberson. I'm at AC Paul. But until next time. We'll catch you on the flip side. Bye.